The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 55 to the chief musician with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Attend to me and hear me. I am restless in my complaint and moan noisily because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in wrath they hate me. My heart is severely pained within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. So I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Indeed, I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness. Selah. Ever felt like that? You just want to fly away? There you go. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around on its walls. Iniquity and trouble are also in the midst of it. Destruction is in its midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from its streets. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell, for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. He has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me, for there were many against me. God will hear and afflict them even he who abides from of old. Selah, because they do not change, therefore they do not fear God. He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has broken his covenant. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in you. Okay, today we're in Esther. We're in uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, the entire chapter today. And before I do that, let me give this to... Uh, Oh, well, anyway, if somebody wants a copy of the sermon, I'm going to leave it right here. Come on up and get it. I forgot I had one extra, apparently. Oh, Vic, it was yours. I knew. See, I told you. Jim? Just throw it Jim? I, you got to remind me of these things. Okay. Let's see here. We're in Esther 8, 1 through 17, Beauty for Ashes. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now Esther spoke again to the king, 
fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring. No one can revoke. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. By these letters, the kings permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people, so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan the citadel. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Amazing, isn't it? The term beauty for ashes has almost become a cliche saying among Christians today. You hear it on the radio a lot and pastors and teachers toss it around like it was a cheap five cent phrase. But it is something that really applies to those who mourn and yet who wait patiently on the Lord. There may be times of immeasurable sorrow and grief, such as the Jews of the Persian Empire felt, but like them, there lies ahead something much better. For Israel's a collective whole, they have frequently encountered times of national sadness. Yes, it has always been a self-inflicted wound, but it was also a temporary one. A time lies ahead when they will finally be right with the Lord and the years of destruction will be replaced with exultation and joy. Unfortunately, this can't be said for each and every Jew, but as a collective whole, it will be so. For the struggling Christian, it is also a sure guarantee. We have what collective Israel has, a sure hope. 
No individual believer will be permanently left in a state of mourning, and the trials of this life will someday be replaced with an eternity of wonder and delight. It is coming. And so be comforted now, even if things are wholly miserable. It is coming. Our text verse comes from Isaiah 12. It's verses 1 and 2. And in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. It's hard to acknowledge that the Lord really is angry with us. For Israel, they don't want to admit that what has happened to them is a part of national guilt. In fact, it's considered an offense to them when it is suggested. But the same Lord who established them also told them what would keep them happy and prosperous or what would bring them pain, suffering, and exile. It's right there in black and white. Go read Leviticus 26. Go read Deuteronomy 28. It's right there in black and white if they will just accept him at his word. For us, we were all enemies of God, and he was really and truly angry with us because of this. Like Israel, fallen man does not want to admit this. We place ourselves on a curve. We measure ourselves against others. We rationalize away our wrongdoings, and we justify ourselves through doing good things. But the Lord really remains angry with us while our sin debt remains unpaid. But when we realize that the payment has been rendered, when we accept by faith that it can be applied to our account, and when we reach out for the pardon which has already been purchased, then the words of Isaiah can be applied to us individually. Yes, Lord, I will praise you. Certainly you were angry with me. But now your anger is turned away and I am comforted. Thank God for Jesus Christ. My God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. When we call on Jesus, we may still be on a bed of ashes. The cancer may still be eating away at our bodies. The labors of our job may not meet our wants completely and the house may burn down in the morning. But in Christ, there is a hope of beauty ahead which cannot be taken away. Israel will find this out. Each redeemed of the Lord has found it out. Let us rejoice in what lies ahead, just as Israel is to rejoice in our passage today. Remember the video we watched of Sergio's grandmother earlier today? The joy, the literal joy that was overflowing from that woman as she sat there alone in an apartment. All alone, her husband dead, her family all moved away, and she's literally in joy at the presence of the Lord. The Lord is good to his undeserving people. Yes, let us rejoice in this. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is, not revoked, but annulled. It's verses 1 through 8. Verse 1, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. The last verse of chapter 7 said, So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. It is on this same day that the house of Haman was confiscated, as was the custom for all executed criminals. Being the property of the royal crown, it now was granted to Esther by the king. The irony is almost palpable. 
Haman had determined to destroy the Jews. In their destruction, the plunder of their property would come about. However, he himself was destroyed and his property was plundered for the benefit of a Jewess. This would have included everything connected to the man, such as servants, accumulated wealth, position, and so on. This is certain because no definite article is placed in front of the word house. Instead of saying the house, it says Beit Haman or house of Haman. It is comparable to speaking of the house of David, meaning not just a physical house, but everything associated with King David. What belonged to Haman, all which made him who he was, transferred to Esther. This then is confirmed with the next words. Verse 1 continues, And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The words are not just a form of introduction, such as, Dear king, I want to introduce to you my cousin. Rather, Mordecai is related to Esther, and more, he has proven himself a benefactor of the king. As the king is granted to Esther Beit Haman, or the house of Haman, there must be someone to fill the role of caring for what has been granted to her, including his position within the empire. As Haman was in royal authority, someone of the queen's house will be chosen to fill that now vacated position. How do we know this is correct? We simply continue on with the narrative. Verse 2, so the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman. The tabaat, or signet ring, of the king is removed. This is an anticipation of it being granted to another. As we saw before, the word comes from taba, which means down or to sink. Thus, it is a ring which is used to press into wax or clay in order to impress a seal. It was given to Haman in verse 310. With his demise, it was reacquired by the king. However, the king will now pass it on to another. Verse 2 continues and gave it to Mordecai. This ends another set of twos. In 310, the king took off his signet ring and gave it to Haman so that he possessed the king's authority, including the issuance and authentication of an edict in the king's name. There it was given to a Gentile, Haman, the Amalekite. Here it is given to a Jew, Mordecai. The first time it was for the destruction of the Jews, now it will be for their salvation. They contrast, but they confirm that God sets up rulers and he deposes rulers in order to accomplish his purposes. As a side note concerning this word, tabaat, it was first used in Genesis 41:42 concerning the signet ring of Pharaoh that was taken from his hand and granted to Joseph. It was a marvelous picture of the authority of Christ. And I'll give you a little hint for Sermon 10. It is here too. If you don't remember that, go brush up. After that, the same word was used to describe the rings for carrying the Ark of the Testimony in Exodus chapter 25. Do you remember how many rings there were on the Ark? That's right, four. Those, if you remember, pictured the four Gospels which reveal Christ. They are the link between the Old and New Testaments which speak of the coming Christ and the Christ who has come. Remember the ark signified Christ. You had the four Gospels which are the link between the two staves or the two Testaments of the Bible. Everything pictures Jesus and his word in redemptive history. They reveal his authority. The power and authority is found in the tabaat or the ring. Verse 2 continues, And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. These words clearly show that the house of Haman includes his position, and not just a physical building. 
The position of Haman has been granted to Esther as the queen, and she has appointed Mordecai over that which belonged to Haman. Mordecai has the signet of royal authority, thus he possesses the power of that same position, and he possesses it over what once belonged to Haman. Verse 3, Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. Safety for Esther and Mordecai has been secured, but this was not the full scope of what was needed to fill their hearts until they were pacified. Their people, the Jews, faced destruction still. Despite the fact that their enemy was dead, the decree he had secured against the Jews still stood. Mordecai had been exalted to the high office with royal power and authority. The law that condemned the Jews could no longer be brought against him, but it remained fully in effect over the rest of the Jewish people. It is for this reason that she again does something which is not permitted. In these words, another set of twos is now complete. Queen Esther appeared before the king in an unauthorized manner twice. The first was in chapter 5, when she came before the king without being summoned. The second is here, where she openly mourns in his presence. This was not allowed and was even punishable by death. In doing this, she again risks her life. However, her life is not as important to her as the plight of her people. It is reflective of Paul's words, which are found in Romans chapter 9. Here's what Paul says. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. This is the state of Esther, who, like Paul, was also from the tribe of Benjamin. She has a greater care for her people than for her own life. Her two unauthorized actions before the king contrast. First, she bravely stood before the king's presence without approval in order to begin the petition to save her people. Now she mourns with tears in order to have the decree of destruction revoked. The two accounts contrast, but they are both confirmed in the action of the king, extending to her the royal scepter, signifying his favor. This is seen with the words, verse 4, and the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. The transgression is forgiven, and pardon is granted in this act. This clause contains the last use of the word yashat, translated as held out in the Bible. It was introduced in verse 411, it was seen in verse 52, and now it is biblical history. It is also the last use of sharbit, or scepter. It was seen a total of four times in the exact same three verses. It is now retired from biblical use. With this golden scepter having been held out, it is an indication of the king's favor. Therefore, Esther is free to now rise and face the king. Verse 4 continues, So Esther arose and stood before the king. With her heart opened and exposed before the king, she now stands to express her desire for her people without further fear. Verse 5, And said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes. Esther really heaps it on. First, she starts by speaking in the third person, demonstrating a formality about the matter at hand. 
Secondly, her words include four individual thoughts laid out in a parallelistic structure. One, A, if it pleases the king. Two, B, if I have found favor in his sight. Three, A, and if the thing seems right to the king. And four, B, if I am pleasing in his eyes. The A-B structure, however, is inclusive of a bracketing thought, that of pleasing the king. It begins with, if it pleases the king, and it ends with, if I am pleasing in his eyes. It is a marvelously structured verse, spoken with the intent of completely convincing the king that he should accept the request as it will be made. Within this clause is another new and rare verb in scripture, kasher, translated as seems right. It comes from a root meaning to be straight, and thus it is something acceptable. It will be seen here and twice in the book of Ecclesiastes. Esther is essentially conveying to the king that she has a great desire, but it is the king's ultimate decision to bring the matter about if it is agreeable to him. Despite this, though, she is tying his favor of her into the accomplishment of her request. It would be like one of us saying, if you really loved me, you would do blah, 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 but only if you think it's the right thing to do. Women are generally very good at this type of thing. Verse 5 continues, let it be written to revoke the letters. The idea here is expressed by John Lang with the words, pay careful attention to John Lang's words, to cause to change from the state of being to non-existence. He really caught on to something there. I can tell you that. Wait for chapter 10. There is a royal edict which exists and which cannot pass away. And yet Esther is requesting that letters be written to cause them to be annulled nonetheless. Verse 5 continues. Devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. It hardly seems necessary to include all of this detail. It would seem more likely that she'd simply say which was devised by Haman. But she doesn't. Instead, the entire title is given. From the explanation that I gave you of the names in chapter 3, we could rewrite this sentence by saying, devised by certainty, that's the meaning of Haman's name, the son of one who works in darkness, the high one. Remember, he is of the line of Amalek, who is in perpetual conflict with Israel. Esther is asking that what he has wrought be revoked, lest the enemy win the battle over God's people. This was found in the edict, verse 5 continues, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who were in all of the king's provinces. Wherever the Jews were within the empire, the edict was issued that all should be annihilated. Though Mordecai and Esther were no longer under the law, those of Israel were. Their sentence was one of death unless the law could be made to vanish away. If you want to know what I'm talking about there, go read Hebrews 8, verse 13. Verse 6, for how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Esther, despite being freed from the law, must still look at the effects of the law imposed upon her people. Her hope, request, and desire is to save them from what must occur if the law remains in effect. Evil will befall them, and destruction is set forth as long as the law remains. Does this sound at all familiar to you in today's world? The book is detailing a scenario which continues to be repeated even now. For those of you who follow these things, she uses a word, obdan, which is found only here in the entire Bible. It means destruction, coming from the word abad, which also means destruction. That's the root of a word that you'll find in the book of Revelation, 
which means the same thing. Verse 7, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. The words of the king are to both Esther as queen and to Mordecai as his now-appointed royal official. And yet, they still identify Mordecai as the Jew. How can it be that he is a Jew and yet he is no longer bound to the law to be destroyed as a Jew? And yet it is so. To them both, he in essence says, look at what I've done already. I've granted your requests and I'm willing to do more. However, there is a problem that will require your taking action. Verse 8, you yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. The first decree cannot be undone, but a new decree can be written on behalf of the Jews. They are under the law of destruction, but a new law can be written in the king's name and sealed with his seal for their benefit. The full authority and power of the king can be used, and it will be confirmed with the signet's seal. Verse 8 continues, For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. How do you circumvent a law which mandates destruction and which must be allowed to continue to its fulfillment and yet still save the people who are under that law from that same law? If you can understand the premise, then you can begin to see what the book of Esther is showing us and what it is intended to reveal. The word is irrevocable. In this case, a word which brings death. And yet another word can be issued which will grant life. The king will not allow one word of reversal of the former command, but yet its power can be annulled through a new command. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go read Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. I'm giving away Sermon 10 for you, okay? This is very clear what's going on in the pages of Esther. Very clear once you figure it out. The verse now ends another set of twos. There's a lot of twos that are ending in this chapter. The irrevocability of a law was noted first in verse 119. It is then noted again here. They contrast as one was concerning the authority of man over woman in the realm, and this one concerns the protection of the Jew throughout the realm. But both confirm what God has ordained in his word. Man is to have authority over the woman, and the Jew is to be preserved as a people, despite what Reformed theology teaches, forever, forever. Do not listen to Reformed theologians that say that this is history. The book of Esther itself is revealing to us that it isn't, much less the book of Leviticus, which was explicit, not in some type of allegory or picture or symbolism. Explicit. Do not listen to those people. The signet of authority, the symbol of power, is granted to the man who will rescue the Jews. And his authority extends by the mile and by the hour. And in his decree, there is the most joyous of news. He is their protector, their defender is he. His edict will bring them from certain death unto life. The enemy may attack, but he will be defeated, certainly. Through the edict will come victory and ending of the strife. The first decree came, and with it came death, failure, and strife. It is written and cannot be revoked, but there is good news yet. The second decree is given, and with it comes life. It will annul the first, and a joyous future will be set. Everybody know what chapter 10 is going to tell you? There you go. Our second thought today, light and gladness, joy and honor. It's verses 9 through 17. Verse 9, so the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, 
which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day. Taking advantage of the allowances of the king, the scribes are called once again to write a new law. Instead of a law of death, a law of salvation and life will now be written. The specific day and month are given. It is the 23rd of the third month, Sivan. This is the only time that Sivan is mentioned in the entire Bible. The day of the edict is two months and ten days after the writing of the original from Haman. The time between the two edicts was long enough for the unseen Lord to teach them a lesson. The Jews had failed to return to their homeland. They had stayed abroad and remained in their sins. They had neglected obedience to the Lord. They had ignored the religion which he had established and which was to be attended to by them in Jerusalem each year. And yet they will be spared by him nonetheless. The real question for them here and for the same group of people today is, will they pay heed and learn their lesson? Or maybe even better, when will they pay heed and learn their lesson? Verse 9 continues, And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language. This is an empire-wide edict which issued forth directly from Mordecai, but with the full authority and approval of the king. Like Haman's law, it was written to all levels of authority and even to the common person on the street. But in addition to what was said in that previous edict, this one adds in a very special note. Verse 9 continues, And to the Jews in their own script and language. Being a part of the Persian Empire, this would have been written directly to the Jews in their own homeland. But what seems to be the case is that an edict was written to the Jews in their dispersion also. A separate translation in Hebrew would probably have accompanied all of the individually written edicts in the language of any particular land. Imagine being the Hebrew scribe and having to write that out 127 times. Ouch! As a note of trivia, verse 9 is the longest verse in the Old Testament and also the longest verse in the entire Bible, consisting of 43 words of 192 letters. Verse 10, And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. It is Mordecai who wrote the edict, but it is with the authority of the king that it was sealed using the royal signet. From there, it went out quickly throughout the empire. Two new foreign words are used here and which are variously translated. So please do not get upset if your translation reads completely differently. Nobody really knows what these words mean. The first is ha-ahashtaranim, which will only be seen here and then again in verse 14. And the other is beneha ramakim, or the sons of the ramakim, which is only found here. Some say fast horses, or royal horses, or camels, or mules, and so on. Something like riders of the dromedary, the mules, sons of the mares, is probably close to correct. Different terrains would necessitate various animals in order to cross those terrains. Verse 11, by these letters, the kings permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. The words echo the first decree, and thus the Jews are given like authority to act against their enemies. It must be remembered that the first edict allowed the aggressors to lay hands on the plunder. 
Even if some didn't like the Jews or even if they didn't dislike the Jews, it was an incentive to kill them anyway. If the Jews of the Persian Empire were as industrious as they have been throughout the rest of their history, they have certainly obtained wealth and abundance. Haman's order was one which would be especially enticing to take advantage of. In the new edict, only defensive measures are authorized. Despite being allowed to defend themselves, if their wealth is great, a crowd would be expected to come and wipe them out in order to enrich themselves. However, with wealth comes the ability to purchase protection. A minor civil war could ensue. But the very fact that a new edict has been issued would mean that the king was now supportive of the Jews. And so there would be less chance of an attack. Further, they were allowed to gather as a unit to defend themselves. And even more, verse 9-3 says that the fear of Mordecai came upon the leaders throughout the empire and they in turn helped the Jews. And yet more, if the Jews prevailed like the first edict, they were authorized to not only kill their enemies, but their enemies' wives and their enemies' children as well. This would be a terrifying incentive to not harm the Jews. And then yet more, the Jews would be allowed to gather their possessions as plunder. And as if icing on the cake, verse 17 will show that the number of Jews will actually increase prior to the day of destruction. What was originally certain disaster for the Jews was now to be turned into a fight against them initiated only by the foolish. Verse 12, on one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. This verse corresponds to verse 313. It is the same day of the original edict that the Jews are now allowed to gather and to defend themselves from the first law. A law of salvation has come to override the law of death. Verse 13, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people. These words correspond exactly to verse 314. The edict is all but identical to what Haman had ordered. The only exception is that this one is written on behalf of the Jews, as we still see. Verse 13 continues, so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. Rather than being helpless prey, they will now be ready defenders, and even aggressors if attacked. Once they are assaulted, they may in turn avenge themselves. The word for avenge here doesn't necessarily imply any hatred, but rather a just retribution based on offense. It is used of the Lord avenging himself upon his enemies in a just and righteous manner. Unfortunately for Israel, it is at times used by the Lord to avenge himself upon them for their own faithlessness. That is seen, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 5 with these words, For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and grown rich. They have grown fat and they are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper. And the right of the needy, they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself? On such a nation as this, verse 14, the couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan the citadel. This verse is a close repeat of the first half of verse 315. However, two verbs are used here, haste and pressed on, in order to show the exceeding importance of the new decree. 
Despite being more than eight months until the day of the edict, this was probably to ensure that nobody got ahead of the first decree and started wiping out Jews early. Further, it would give all of the realm time to see and reflect on the newly exalted status of the Jews within the empire. Any doubts about the edict could be referred back to Mordecai, who would set them straight on anything they misunderstood. The various translated word Ahashtoran was introduced into the Bible in verse 10. Now, just a few verses later, we can bid it adieu. Whatever it actually means, it is no longer a word for us to fret over. This verse now closes out another set of twos. The first was in 310, and it was the issuance of a royal edict for the destruction of the Jews. That is now overwritten here. One is for the Jews' destruction, one is for their salvation. They contrast, but they confirm God's overarching protection of the Jews despite the wicked plots against them. Man enacts, but God rules over man as absolute sovereign. Verse 15, so Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. Mordecai is granted royal honors, not just in the presence of the king, but as he went in and out from the king's presence. His garments and crown would be seen by any and by all. The crown here is not the same word as for the crown that was being used while he was conducted on the horse by Haman. It is one fit for the office he holds. Surely the words of Isaiah were true of Mordecai. Isaiah, speaking of those in Israel who were set free by their Redeemer, said the following words, To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Mordecai had received joy instead of mourning and beauty in place of his previous sackcloth and ashes. His spirit of heaviness was changed to a position of praise. To highlight this, the garment of fine linen mentioned here is described by a unique word in all of scripture, takrik. It comes from an unused root meaning to encompass. Thus, it was a particular robe special to his office alone. This verse now completes another set of twos. In verse 611, Mordecai was invested with special clothes and accompanying honors appropriate to his good deeds towards the king. Here, he is again noted in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. The two contrast in that he was first temporarily honored for a deed accomplished in the saving of the king. Now, it is for a permanent appointment as a royal in the king's palace. They contrast, and yet they confirm the honorable deeds and skill of Mordecai. Verse 15 continues, And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The word for rejoiced here is one new in scripture, sahal. It signifies shouting out and crying aloud. The people literally bellow with joy. With these happy words, we close out yet another set of twos. In verse 315, the city of Shushan was said to be perplexed. Here, it rejoices and is glad. They contrast, certainly, but they confirm the wise proverb of Solomon, which says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. The words here are reflective of a state of absolute elation of heart. 
Each signifies a type of joy. The first is ora, or light. Just as a person is said to beam with joy, so light is used in the Bible. It is reflective of Psalm 97, verse 11, which says, Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. This light had come to replace the once coming darkness. Next is simcha, or mirth. It is a joy of rejoicing. This is followed by sason, a new word in the Bible signifying exultation. It is practically synonymous with the previous word. Thus, it is given to show the greatness of the joy. And finally is yakar, or honor. This was introduced in Esther 1 verse 4, and now it has been used 10 times in Esther, this teeny little book, 10 times this word is used. It gives a sense of dignity or even pomp. The Jews have been elevated from the ash heap to the mountaintop. Verse 17, and in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. The joy of Shushan eventually spread to every location where the decree was sent, so that the same superlative words of the previous verse are repeated here. There was joy upon joy, but even more, there came a mishteh, or a banqueting feast, and a yam tov, or a good day. One can see the partying going on and on and on as the Jews celebrated the wonderful news. This verse closes out another set of twos. In chapter 4, after the giving of the first edict, there is great mourning, fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many laying in sackcloth and ashes. Here, after this edict, there is joy, gladness, honor, a feast, and a holiday. The two contrast, yes, but they also confirm the unity of the people in both distress and in exultation. And we see that even to this day in the Jews. They may not agree on anything. They may be conservative. They may be liberal. They may be Buddhists. But they are united as a people. It is astonishing. Verse 17 continues, Then many of the people of the land became Jews. The word yahad, or to become a Jew, is found only here in the entire Bible. The actual requirements for this are found in Exodus 12, verse 48. The people were to be circumcised, and then they could keep the Passover at the appropriate time of the year. With this done, they were to be considered as natives of the land. From there, they would be obligated to the same laws as the rest of the Jews. This conversion is also something which is prophesied in the book of Zechariah for the people of the future. Here's what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. Verse 17 finishes with these words, because fear of the Jews fell upon them. There are verses which show that this would occur when Israel entered the land of Canaan. One is found in Exodus 15 in the Song of Moses. The other is found in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Both say the dread would fall on the inhabitants of Israel when they came into the land of Canaan. The same is true now even outside of the land of Canaan. Because of the Lord their God, and even when not properly or openly recognized by them, it is still perceived that a force greater than them was with them. The dread of the Jews fell upon the people, and those around them threw in their lot with them, joining to them in a permanent bond. As we close, it should be noted that throughout history, people have united with the Jews in this same fashion. There are debates who the real Jews are. Are they Sephardic Jews? the Ashkenazic Jews, the Ethiopian Jews, and so on. Many claim that the people in the land of Israel today are not true Jews, or that only a portion of them are. 
Even Jews argue this among themselves. The debate, though, at least from a biblical standpoint, is unsound. The requirements for being a Jew do not stem from the Talmud, nor do they stem from the practices of the various offshoots of Jews. They stem from the Bible. And they show that those who have met the requirements of compliance found in Scripture can be Jews and thus are Jews. What this means is that those who are in the land today, regardless of their background over the past 2,000 years, are the real Jews who are set to see the fulfillment of the final plan that God has for them in redemptive history. Those who survive what lies ahead will, at that time, become what we would call completed Jews. They will call out for their true Savior, whom they have missed for these past millennia, and they will be saved when he comes to deliver them. That's found in Revelation chapter 19, folks. The time is coming, and it probably is not far off. Esther is showing snapshots of the past which anticipate fulfillment of them in the future. Like all of the Bible, it is showing us what is and what lies ahead for those who are in Christ or who will be in Christ. It is all about him, and the Jewish people are a great, great part of his unfolding plans. As we say our daily prayers, we should include them in what we pray about. The unseen Lord in Esther is the only hope for them. Without him, they are as lost as the worst of pagans. But the same is also true with us. We have a need, and that need is Jesus. He is the Lord directing the events of Esther, and he is the Lord directing the events of all of redemptive history, a history of which every single soul is a part. The question for us is, what side of God's redemptive plans will we be on? Will we come to Christ and be delivered, or will we refuse him and be lost? The choice belongs to us. The salvation belongs to him, and he grants it freely to those who choose wisely. And so as I do each week, I'd like to just real quickly tell you that the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. And Scripture is a detailed map of all of human history. It's not detailed in the sense of where to go find gold. It's not a detailed map of where to, you know, do this or that. Shall I take my vacation on this island or not? People use it that way. They'll pick up the Bible and they'll say, what do you have for me today, Lord? And they poke their finger and say, okay, that's it. And they say, well, that's my sign. Okay, that's not what it's for. It's a detailed map of redemptive history of what God did at the beginning of how man messed it up and how Jesus Christ will enter into the stream of humanity and fix what we screwed up. Okay, that is what it is. And you're seeing that today in Esther. I hope some of you have clued into at least a portion of what is being shown here. It's going to get clearer and clearer. And when we get to chapter 10, you're going to go, wow, that was, that was pretty amazing. Okay, but you see it all starting to form right now. God loves us enough to do all of this and to give us a recorded account of it. So that when we read this book, if we are willing to accept it for what it is, we will find Jesus Christ. We will find salvation and we will find restitution and reconciliation with God. Okay? That is our duty as human beings is to pursue the God that is out there. I had a couple of uh, Indians come uh, to my house yesterday to buy mangoes. They work over at Disney, right? And uh, they are uh, Hindus. Okay, and she started talking about, oh, well, all the gods are the same and blah, blah, blah. Okay, and I didn't get into, into a debate with her. I was very nice to her. She wanted plants. I gave her cuttings of half the plants in the garden. She went out with bags full of plants that she can, you know, all kinds of curry stuff. And, you know, she wanted this. And Okay, she paid for the mangoes, though. Anyway, um, so we, uh, we talked for quite a while. And I thought, there's no point in arguing over something right now that they, they aren't introduced yet. 
And so I said, which one of you two is driving? He said, I am. I said, well, I give it to the wife. And I said, I want you to read this on the way home. And I'd like you to think about it. Because they promised they'd be back. They'll come and stay with us maybe. Or maybe they'll just come by when they go to the beach for the weekend or something. But anyway, that, that is the foot in the door. And that is our job is to get the foot in the door and to tell people about Jesus. Because he will change their lives if they are willing to accept it. But we have to be willing to accept it. But somebody also has to be willing to share the message. So... Jesus Christ came. He lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live. He gave up that life in exchange for our sins. He went into the grave to prove that he was dead. He came out of the grave to prove that he did not have sin of his own. And all he asks us to do is believe. Just believe and we will be saved. That is what God asks of us. It's so small that we just trip right over it and we say it can't be that easy. And as I said at the beginning of the sermon, we go out and we work and we compare ourselves against other people and all that kind of stuff. None of that will get you any closer to God. Only Jesus Christ can. So please call on him today and be reconciled to God through his precious son. Our closing verse comes from Psalm 91. It's a great psalm. Verses 1 and 2. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation. His righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. Next week, excuse me, Esther 9, 1 through 17. The Lord directed and provided the remedies. It's entitled Rest from Their Enemies. That'll be our 11th Esther sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. At times you might feel as if he has no great design for you in life, but he has brought you to this moment to reveal his glory in and through you. So follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Little longer poem than last week, but still not real long. You wait till we get to the book of Numbers, folks. I got one chapter that is gonna take, the poem's gonna take longer than the whole sermon, all right? This is entitled Beauty for Ashes. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. There it was in Shushan and not in Grand Cayman. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. She informed the king of this thing. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman, because her cousin was a really good guy. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears. She really had the blues to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. For her he did this thing. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, then relieve our plight. Let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces to remove us from his sight. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people then? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, relaying this news, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourself write a decree concerning the Jews, as you please in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring. Write it according to your desired aim. For whatever is written in the king's name, really it's not a joke, and sealed with the king's signet ring, 
no one can revoke. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan. On the 23rd day, the task was taken on. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes too of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, a lot of writing they needed to do. To every province in its own script, so they did do. To every people in their own language and to the Jews in their own script and language too. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring. From the throne it proceeds and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. By these letters the king permitted the Jews, who were in every city to gather together and their lives protect, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, if any harm they did detect both little women and children, and to plunder their possessions on one day day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus near and far on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people too, so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies, so they were to do. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan the citadel and throughout the empire's land. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. He was a pretty dandy sight. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Things had turned too good from what was once really bad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor in every province and city. Hooray! Wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them by this royal news. Lord God, thank you for your presence that is with us, even when we don't realize that you are there. Because you sent your own son, Jesus, we can know that you truly do care. And so, Lord, be real to us in a wonderful new way. Open our minds and hearts to seeing you always, through every step we take and throughout every day. Be real to us, O oh God, and to you we shall give all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this marvelous, oh, this tapestry of wisdom that is just unfolding slowly but surely to show us something so amazing that it, it is really astonishing. Thank you that we're starting to get those little hints right now that are showing us where we are in redemptive history, what is going on, and how it pertains to the people of this world that you love, and in particular, the Jewish people. Lord, we do pray for them. We should pray for them with our hearts every single day to open their eyes and to see Jesus. What a loss it is to go through this life, think that we are honoring you and to not be honoring you in any way, shape, or form. What a sad day that is in our lives when we stand before you and are cast away from your presence because we failed to see Jesus. Help it not to be so in the lives of ourselves, our friends, our, our visitors, our guests, and the Jewish people. Lord, we just pray for the word to go out so that many will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then we'll be filled with joy inexpressible. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this chance that we have to come into your presence. And we certainly have a few prayer requests that were mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. We've got Darla who's having her surgery tomorrow. Please be with the surgeons and guide them, give them skill and keep any 
infection away from the tools and instruments that are used. And we pray for Jack and Beth Colvin, who are spending a lot of time in the hospital as he recuperates. We certainly ask that you strengthen him and give him soundness in his body and uh, a chance to get out and play tennis very soon once again. And Lord, we pray for Ron Elkin, who is in Columbia, either South Carolina or the nation, but wherever he is, we pray that you be with him as he has his stem cell, uh, uh, whatever procedure. And Lord, we pray for anybody else who is in affliction and trial right now, whether it's financial trial or physical or mental or moral or whatever, we would pray that you would strengthen them and bring them back to yourself. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for the chance to hear your word read. It is precious. It is wonderful. And next we commit the Lord's Supper to you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you're beginning to see the, uh, the pictures coming out. Like I said, I probably gave you too much today, but... I think even if I didn't, I gave you enough to give you a clue as to where this is going. And it, it, did anybody see that before today, what I'm starting to refer to? No, no I mean, no, it took no. me until chapter 10 before I suddenly realized what was going on. It took a while. I don't know if Hedico remembers, but I was in kind of stressed for two or three days, and it's because I was really struggling with this. And then, like I said, I came in here on that sat uh, Sunday morning, and I said, I'm I've got it. It may not please people. I'm going to say that right now. There are going to be people who are unhappy with the conclusions, but I have to go where the, Lord, the word of the Lord goes. That's all there is to it. So 